0: This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Mm. This week, we are off to do the rounds of the Missouri Arts Council's featured March artists. So we have stops in Columbia, Springfield, St. Louis and Kansas City with a painter, a story sharer, an architectural abstract photographer and a fibers and performing artist. As always with the Missouri Arts Council artists, there was too much to share in too little time. So let's head straight out. First stop, Columbia. For anyone paying a modicum of attention and also patronising a number of restaurants in Colombia, you have likely seen the artwork of Columbia painter Ken Nichols, as it is on the walls of Sycamore, Sake Bistro, the Bardow, and Broadway Brewery Restaurants, and is also often displayed at the Sega Reeves Gallery. Last year, his oil painting entitled Sometimes It's a Door was selected by the Office of Cultural Affairs for the 2021 City of Columbia commemorative poster. The work's portrayal of a weathered wooden door standing in the middle of a rural crossroads was chosen by the selection committee for its idea of the city being at a metaphorical crossroads in its 200th year, opening a door to the past and also asking us to step into the future. The work's mixture of realism and surrealism seemed to be a social media lightning rod for half a minute. Everybody loves to have an opinion. As with any artwork, it had its proponents and its detractors, but I was definitely in the love it camp. And so I am so pleased to get to chat with Ken Nichols about his work. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Ken.
1: Thank you very much. Good to be here.
0: How much do people's opinions matter to you at this point in your career? Do you pay zero attention and just get on with what you love? Or do you lie in bed at night thinking, I should have painted a giant squirrel instead of a door?
1: That is so funny you ask that question in that way. Uh, A friend and I were sitting on her back deck 10 minutes ago, and I showed her a picture of a squirrel (laughs) that I want to do a painting of. And we we talked for a half an hour about why I wasn't going to do it because, you know, you start to think about what's the market for this. Is this going to offend somebody? Could this go on a wall somewhere? Or am I going to do it just because I think it's beautiful and, I'm, and I want to do that painting? So at the end of the day, I'd love to hear what people have to say about my work, um, good or bad, after the fact. But I try not to let it bleed into my decision making with what I'm going to make.
0: I think people have difficulty sometimes with surrealist components. They understand, well, that's a tree. It looks like a tree. It acts like a tree, so it must be a tree. But when you add in a component that is just a little bit of imagination twist to it, it kind of troubles people sometimes. Do you find that realistic works are better accepted than the mixture surrealism-realism works?
1: Uh, No, you know, and there's a fine line between what people think of as uh, realistic and and abstract, too. You can get somebody standing in front of the same painting who thinks it's uh, realistic and somebody Mm. who thinks it's surreal or abstract or whatever. But I tend to have very abstract stuff and then I have very realistic stuff. And my realistic stuff, I think, tends, I wouldn't call it boring, but, you know, when you're portraying something, you want every every leaf in there and you want every whatever in there. And yeah, I can see how if you kind of turn that on its head and put something that's not supposed to be in there, that could that could bother somebody. Or I think somebody could fall in love with it because it it is it is making them question things and it's challenging them.
0: What do you have on your walls? What do you want to stare at day in, day
1: out? I have only paintings that I don't want to mess up by leaning them up against other paintings. (laughs) Uh, I I live in a real tiny uh, converted carriage house that's perfect. It's got tall ceilings so my easel can go as high as I want it to go. But as far as storage and wall space, you know, I do enough stuff to where there might be some splattering that I don't put up anything on the wall that I want to get ruined.
0: So going back to that Work. Sometimes it's a door. It obviously has a lot of symbolic meaning for you. Maybe different symbolic meaning than the selection committee saw. What inspired you
1: on that work? Uh, the first painting was sometimes it's a chair, and it was a folding chair, a wooden folding chair that was straddling I seventy, just just east of Columbia. And then I did the door piece as a companion piece to that, and. Not to get, you know, too deep or whatever, but the idea was sort of, sometimes you need something to get in your way, to stop you and to give you pause. Um, Sometimes it's a door. Sometimes it's a chair. That's, it's not, you know, it's something that's not supposed to be there. It's incongruous and uh, just makes you have to stop and think.
0: And its location where you placed it on that crossroads, I think, is it East and South Bearfield or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why that? crossroads
1: well it's right there at the country day school which if you go another half block south that's the uh entrance to the park and so that's where i go to think um so that's like when you when you cross that road right there you're in nature now and you're turning on a different part of your brain and so that's why that's meaningful to me
0: had you painted it specifically to enter it for this city's annual commemorative poster competition
1: nope (laughs) (laughs) okay
0: (laughs) (laughs) So did you also think about entering the chair across I-70?
1: I actually gave them, I think, 15 paintings. Oh, wow. Well, I, you know, I I submitted a few and then I said, you know, and anything else, if you see something you like better in this file. I had one that I actually thought would have been their selection. It was a little girl who was sort of reaching over the buildings downtown Columbia. I thought that could be pretty cool. But, you know. I like them all because they're mine, so <laughs> i <I'm> biased.
0: <laughs> I want to ask you about a work that's hanging at Broadway Brewery right now called Heading Back. It's a scene of a person walking down what looks to be a street in Colombia, and it's almost as if someone had taken a slightly out-of-focus photograph facing into the sun. And some friends and I had dinner in front of it last week, and one by one everyone noticed it and commented on it and it was very very compelling the sense of brightness of the light the movement within it what was missing what was bleached out it was amazing tell me about that
1: work well thank you so much I love it when people notice and talk about stuff Um, (laughs) I've done that painting before I did it uh, about twice as large in black and white and I always really liked that painting um He's kind of a hunched-over old man. I, I really see myself in that, you know, kind of walking away into a familiar area of downtown. And then I always wanted to see what it would look like in color because, as you say, it's it's meant to be blurry. It's from a blurry photograph and just those kind of bubbles of uh, light that you get, you know, when it's out of focus. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I just liked how it looked.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's awesome. I keep thinking of how we should go back and buy it. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> because I, I think about it a lot. And it was interesting how I was sitting opposite it and I was looking at it as people were talking. And then somebody had kind of half turned around and then they started looking at it and commenting on it. And then everybody else turned around. And then we had this whole conversation about it. So it was a very, very compelling work.
1: Well, lucky for me, that's what happens when you put artwork in a restaurant. And, uh, and people are drinking. That's what, uh, that's what feeds me.
0: <laughs> you write on your website that it was your granny who taught you the value of art. Tell me about your granny.
1: Yeah, she, um, you know... She was in a different time, obviously, so she was a housemaker pretty much, but she was anything but just a housemaker. She's a really brilliant woman. She went to Cornell, and in her later years, she did a lot of flower arranging, and she dabbled in painting, but she was always very self-deprecating. But, you know, she took me to Paris when I was 19, and uh, she, of all the people in my family or anyone I knew at that point, just... uh, legitimized art for me you know this is this is a real thing and it's as important as these other things that all these other you know the sports that all the men are talking about and all this stuff and i I think you know you get that eventually if you're going to become an artist but it was just really fortunate that that happened early
0: it's so rare i think having somebody in your life that teaches you the value of art. I feel like in the silo that I'm in, I'm surrounded by people who believe passionately that art is critical to our well-being and something that's at the core of our humanity. And I'm sure that people listening to this show probably have the same belief, but If the value of art was an accepted truth, then why do we take it out of education? Why do we fund it minimally? And instead, we build giant stadia, which, as you say, is for men to kick or throw balls Uh. around in, (laughs) staring into your crystal ball. Are you an arts optimist or pessimist?
1: I mean, I'm a pessimist in everything. (laughs) So that umbrella would probably cover art, too. And there's this little nihilistic part of me that thinks... You know, if you're not going to fund the arts, fine, because then the, the weeds will just come up even stronger. You know, the people that really just have to be artists, they're going to come up through the cracks of the concrete either way. That's obviously not a great approach to uh, society. We should obviously, everybody should be afforded the opportunity to see if they have art in them and to, you know, appreciate art i I don't know that I have a great answer for that. I haven't thought about it that deeply but, uh, <laughs> it's
0: a big question
1: <laughs> it's like it's like how can it be denied? like so many people love this thing like do we really need to dissect why you know maybe it's maybe it's fun to talk about, but I don't think it's necessary to uh provide a reason for it it's just uh, it's a great thing about life
0: it is and I love how how there is so much variety of arts in colombia what You've been in and out of Columbia many times in your life. You came here when you were 13 to go to school, then you went away, then you came back for university, and then you went out to the West Coast and you came back again. What keeps you coming back to Columbia?
1: Well, even before that, before I was 13, we must have moved uh, seven or eight times. My dad was with State Farm and, uh, you know, just kept moving up the chain there. And so this, I went to Jeff Jr., and then we moved again. I went to high school in Illinois, and this was the first place that I chose to live. And the friends that I made here when I was 18, 19, 20, I'm still great friends with them. You know, those are my best friends still. I'm sure that's true with a lot of people. So, you know, I wanted to see the world. I didn't want to live here forever, but uh, I always wanted to come back.
0: You didn't study art, right? You did a degree in English at Mizzou. Why didn't you pursue arts at degree level?
1: Well, I wasn't probably going to graduate with my English degree because my GPA wasn't great, because I wasn't that interested in school. But I started taking art history classes and just acing them, like just getting deeper and deeper into it. I don't think with my curriculum taking uh, applied art classes was going to help me graduate. So I just, I wanted to try to get out of school if I could. So yeah, I had one intro to drawing class and it was with Bill Hawk, who's a local painter. I'm sure you know who he is and his daughter, Zoe. And I can't say enough about that class. Uh, It's really inspiring. Uh, Never got to take another art class, but that was kind of enough for me academically as far as uh, the art goes.
0: And that was enough to give you the confidence to a few years later think, oh, I might as well have a go at art. And here you are, a successful artist. Yeah, just 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> so last question. I have lots of friends who are artists and they always have an artwork that they cannot let go of. What work do you have of yours that you would never part with?
1: Uh, yeah, no, that's everything's for sale is my, on my family crest. <laughs> um i 'm a very much a minimalist, and you know as, as I said, I live in a small space so i i don't fall in love with objects, even even my own art and especially nowadays with the digital age, if I have a picture of something that 's fine enough you know and I do have pieces that uh it 's not so much I want to get rid of them, but anybody can buy any piece of mine, and that's fine you know that puts food on my table, but there are certain pieces where i I almost want a specific person to to have that piece to appreciate it like I would.
0: Well, that's good news for all of us that want to buy your work. (laughs) You can see the work of Columbia painter Ken Nichols on his website at kennicholsartwork.com as well as on multiple restaurant walls around Columbia. Ken, I'm always delighted when a Columbia artist becomes one of the Missouri Arts Council's featured artists so I get to chat with them. So thank you so much for making time to chat today.
1: It was so nice to talk to you.
0: Caitlin McConnell describes herself as a story sharer and the stories she is passionate about sharing are of the Ozarks region, its people, history and culture. Her family roots in the region go back for at least seven generations and she has been writing about the region since she was in high school when she wrote a weekly history column for her local newspaper, the Marshfield Mail, chalking up nearly 80 columns in total on historic sites in Webster County. It was a journalistic diligence that led to her being selected as the History Channel's Student of the Year. Seven years ago, she launched a website called Ozarks Alive as a way to collect the stories of a disappearing generation, vanishing traditions, as well as contemporary Ozarks culture. And to date, she has written over 450 stories for her website and in 2019 published her first book, Passport to the Ozarks. Caitlin, what a delight to have you on Speaking of the Arts. Oh, thank you. I'm very excited to be here. You know, history is one of those subjects that so many of us struggle with in school as it all seems so dusty and distant, long ago wars, kings and queens, the English being bullies all over the world, (laughs) but something inspired you to dig into the history that was
2: local to you. Where did your love of history begin? Yes, so that interest really uh, is very personal to me. And that's sort of the foundation as to why I am so passionate about documenting the region and preserving its stories today. I was in high school when I discovered a book called Walkin' Preacher of the Ozarks, which was a novel written by an itinerant preacher um, who roamed this region back in the 1930s and 40s era and really described in his book what it was like to live in the region at that time reading it really reminded me of what my own ancestors would have experienced back in those days. And that's what really launched my interest in local history. After I read that, I really just wanted to learn more about the region and really saw the area through my eyes. But I feel like through the eyes of my ancestors, you know, when I would look out on a field, I would wonder if that's how the site had looked when they were looking at it and things like that. And it really just brought it alive for me in a new way.
0: How many generations were available to you? Like, was your great-grandmother alive when you were young and you could ask her questions, or was it two generations? Like, how far back could you go firsthand?
2: I was fortunate to get to meet my great-grandmother. She, unfortunately, however, died when I was around seven or eight years old, and so I really didn't have any experience speaking with her about the Ozarks. But my grandmother is still alive. She actually just celebrated her 90th birthday yesterday yesterday, and so, you know, she had that very personal connection with me because the the farm where she grew up, where I was kind of envisioning this uh, living history, so to speak, was where I grew up. And so it was this lens of just really feeling close to the past, looking at the old barn that's still there, you know, was was this link back to a time that felt very far away, but really, as it's standing right here in front of me, is not that far away. And so I think that her presence that of my my father as well that link in that family line really brought it alive and was a resource and sounding board as well sometimes i think we have to go away to
0: realize what we have and after your degree you moved to norway for 3 years what took you there and more importantly what brought you back because norway is a pretty
2: awesome country <laughs> it is it's very beautiful and there are lots of really wonderful things about norway i enjoyed my time there as a cultural experience very much And that said, I did miss home very much more. Uh, And so I came home in 2015. To your question as to why I was there in the first place, I was actually dating someone who was Norwegian. And so that took me there to begin with. But like I said, while I was there, I just really reinforced for me how much the Ozarks meant to me and really just helped me know for sure that I always want to live here. And this is where I plan to be the rest of my life. Did you see your Ozark heritage any differently after spending time away? You know, I think I saw things that I wish were different about the Ozarks. It was interesting to see another culture that has similarities in some ways in terms of its close-knit relationships. People who, in a lot of cases, don't move far from home. The town I was living in was very much that way. And it, it taught me how difficult it was to move to a place that is like that. And and when I moved home, made me really want to be able to be a resource for people who might not be from the Ozarks, or even people who are, who just want to learn more about it. Because I saw how difficult it was to sort of ingrain myself in a culture that was that deep in its roots.
0: I think that no matter when anyone starts the kind of historical documentation that you're doing, it's always always feels like a race against time to catch the oldest stories as they are usually held by the oldest people. But as I said in the intro, the world is changing ever faster, and not only people, but also old traditions are disappearing. Talk to me about where you feel that race against time most keenly.
2: I think it combines with both of those things, with traditions and with people. You know, the Ozarks, for a number of reasons, developed more slowly with progress than other areas of the country. And so, I feel like there are still opportunities here to document and learn about things that might have disappeared in other areas. But that said, you know, uh, quite a number of people I've interviewed since the site's start in 2015 have passed away. You know, I feel like every time I hear about someone who's in their 80s or 90s who lived their life here and they've passed away, it, it was a missed opportunity to really learn or reinforce messages that I feel I understand about the region. But it just feels like, it's really important to kind of put this date stamp on what the region is like, not only in the past, but today, because a lot of the things I write about aren't necessarily history, they're just a continuation of tradition for many years. And so both of those things, I think, combine and really just fuel my um, enthusiasm or obsession, as some people might describe it, (laughs) and uh, and really trying to get at all these stories while I still have the chance. As you
0: say, a lot of what you cover in Ozarks Alive is about present day ozark life you call it historical preservation in the present so that the current time we live in is preserved for future generations and that really means you become the arbiter to some degree of what is kept and what is not what are your thoughts on that arbiter role do you have kind of a philosophy
2: about that Well, the way you describe that sounds somewhat terrifying to me because it actually is is somewhat how I feel. But it also reinforces to me that, you know, as one person, there's no way I can capture everything that needs to be preserved, in my opinion. I think that it's always fascinating to me when I learn about one person's experience because that's very important. But just hearing from one person does not create the narrative that, that this was the way it was everywhere. You really need lots of data to, to reinforce messages and, and trends and things about a region. And so I do hope that people take what they read as informative and educational and, and as entertaining too, but also with a grain of salt that one person's experience does not define an entire region. And so it's really kind of learning from it, but also knowing there's always more to learn beyond that as well.
0: What are some of the major shifts in culture that you have witnessed as you've collected some of those 450 stories for Ozarks
2: Alive? You know, I think that um, some of them are ones you see within lifetimes with regards to technology. I mean, even just last week, I interviewed a woman who's 96 and was speaking about, you know, going to a one room schoolhouse and not having electricity and, and having a farm that she was a part of as a child. You know, those ones every day sends those farther and farther into the past. But there are also cultural ones, you know, with regards to things like music parties that today are still a part of the culture and I hope will be for a long time. But as our time gets consumed with other forms of entertainment, you know, with technological advances and things that just take more of our attention, those are at risk as well. And so I think that for me, it's about documenting those older stories, but also understanding how cultural shifts outside of the Ozarks impact the Ozarks and really both appreciating and and not necessarily propping up what we have artificially, but just keeping what's authentic going as long as we can.
0: I would love to have you delve into your memory banks of some of the stories that you've shared on the site and talk about a few that maybe have stood out for you. How about a particular person who has really moved you?
2: Yes. Well, you know, when you say that, there's one person, well, I should say there's many people, of course, who who have impacted me in different ways. But the one who always comes to mind for me is a woman named Theda Porter, whom I met, I believe, in 2016, if I remember correctly. She was 88 years old at the time, and I was out meeting her because she uh, was still running a restaurant single-handedly at that time in rural Douglas County, Missouri, which, if anyone's familiar with that, is around where Ava is. She had done this since she was in her 30s, so she this was part of a tradition that went deep into her life, and it was just something she never wanted to stop. She kind of said, well, what am I going to do if I don't run my restaurant? And, you know, I say by run her restaurant, that literally meant everything. She was the only employee. She cooked the food, took the orders, bust the tables, rang customers up and everything – and so to me, that was very impactful because it wasn't something that she was doing to do it. She was doing it because it was part of her life. And that was just a continuation of it, even though to everyone else, it seemed very unusual that she would still be willing to do such a thing. I ended up visiting Theta many times when I would drive through the area. And she ran that restaurant until she died almost a year and a half ago now, I believe, or maybe two years time, sort of flies in COVID time. But she ran it up until I think a week or maybe two weeks before she died. It was exactly, you know, I would assume the way she wanted things to to end if they had to end, where she just got to keep doing this up until the very end. And to me, that that Ozark spirit of just doing this this tradition forever and also creating community around that because her restaurant was a place that people gathered, um, I just felt like she really encompassed many different elements of why I do what I do. And I was an honor to get to meet her and, and share those stories.
0: What about a place
2: or an event? Any strange little quirky place? (laughs) You know, uh, yes, there's many, depending on what people are interested in. I think that, like I said, music is a big feature. You know, you say kind of longtime traditions, um, one that comes to mind that I believe is still going on. I haven't checked in 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 a year or so now, but in a little town called El Dorado Springs in the the, uh, northwest corner of the Ozarks, They still have a community band that has been in existence since, I believe, the 1800s that gives concerts in their town park every weekend during the summer. And it's something that generations of families have participated in. You know, you go to the concert and you see grandkids with their grandparents there. And it's just a really unique, heartwarming thing that these bands used to be very common in the Ozarks. Nearly all of them have disappeared now. But yet this band has continued on at least, like I said, through a year or so ago, and I assume it's still going on. I haven't heard differently. But it's those things, those things that link traditions and link generations and really keep community alive, because that's something, too, you asked about changes in the Ozarks. Mm. The cultural shifts in terms of rural America, especially in the Ozarks, are very different today than they were 25 years ago, and they will probably be very different 25 years ago than they are today. So it's, it's important to capture those while we have them.
0: For all the fun and heartwarming... Ozark stories, there is a darkness to some of the hollers down there too. And there's a reason that novelists like Daniel Woodrell and Laura McHugh write Ozark noir stories there from the Ozarks and grew up knowing about the darker side of the region. And I know that's not what you want to write about in Ozarks Alive, but I'm just curious how often you come across stories
2: that make you a little wary of delving in too deep. You know, I think that um, that's a good question. Like you said, Most of what I do is positive, not all of it. I've never wanted to be seen as a PR mouthpiece for the Ozarks because we definitely do have our own issues that I think we need to be working through. You know, there's extreme poverty in parts of the Ozarks, extreme drug issues. Those are very true. And I think that for me, you know, I made a transition a few months ago to be doing this work full time. Prior to that, it was a side obsession on nights and weekends. But now I get to devote most of my days to this. And now that I have more time, I actually would like to delve more into those issues, you know, not perhaps in a dramatic sense. That's not really what I do. Mm. But in a in a sense that let's talk about these problems and understand them better, because there are issues that go deep into the Ozarks, you know, other things I have written about, you know, racial attitudes and areas, I wish that we could make a difference and change those as well, because I want the Ozarks to feel like a place that everyone would feel like they could be happy here. And I think that that's another issue that we need to work through. But, you know, I think that overall, there's dramatic stories written about everywhere in the world. The Ozarks is no exception. People are attracted by drama and fear, perhaps, and the unknown. And so those are themes that come through in books like that. But I don't think it makes us an outlier. And I would also add on that I wish that people would pay more attention to things in the Ozarks than are shown in the show Ozark, because I know that that's given (laughs) us a lot of attention over the last few years. And and there's more to the region than that as well.
0: Filmed in Georgia, of course. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) What is your geographic range for your Ozark stories? Where are the boundaries for your beat?
2: It's a little bit fluid, um, and I designed it that way so that if there was something I really wanted to write about that technically was outside the boundaries, I still could. But generally, it's the Kansas state line down into northwest Arkansas over towards around um, Shannon, Reynolds, Ripley County area, and then up to around Lake of the Ozark. So it's fairly broad just because, like I said, I wanted to be able to have flexibility to write about things that I felt were important to write about. Uh, But it is interesting in that span of land because you have distinct like micro cultures within it. So you, you definitely feel like you're in different areas when you drive around in different places.
0: Do you just wander around the area willy nilly and stop every now and again and see if anyone's got a story? Or do you specifically go somewhere because someone has said, hey, there's a person you need to meet?
2: It's a little of both. I definitely do actually just spend a lot of time driving around because there are times when I would never have heard of stories unless I literally stumbled across them. You know, obviously, I do try to be as efficient as possible. And it's it's been a good thing for me that, you know, over the years I've been doing this, I have developed a you know number of contacts throughout the region. So people tell me about stories. Facebook for me has been great because I learn about a lot of things that way as well. But even beyond those things, just reading through old newspapers, that has been been a big help because there are things I either can kind of get my interest going or just something that might be good to revisit because it was covered years ago or whatever. But, you know, for example, today I went to Ava. I mentioned that a minute ago. I'm uh, in town today wandering around and kind of looking for some story ideas. So it it definitely, like I said, wandering is a big part of this. (laughs)
0: Well, you can read Caitlin McConnell's collected stories of Ozarks life and history on her website, ozarksalive.com, where you can also find information about her book, Passport to the Ozarks, a guidebook to the region. Caitlin, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and for doing all the work you're doing to document the Ozarks.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: St. Louis-based photographer Ken Conchal has been described as a hardcore architectural abstractionist and an old-school modernist whose photography, quote, combines the sense of imposing brute solidity with the subtlety of twists and turns. For his part, Ken says that his goal is to photograph buildings in arresting ways so that it challenges and captivates people and makes them better see architecture's intriguing visual possibilities and his work has some pretty impressive stats. He's won 74 awards in juried shows and art fairs, and he's been juried into 195 exhibitions across the country. By day, he is the part-time Associate Director of Volunteer Lawyers and Accountants for the Arts in St. Louis, which is a fabulous organisation that all arts leaders should know about. And he is the author of a book called Architectonic, a collection of 50 of his favourite photographs, which is in the collection of the Library of Congress. And for the next 15 minutes, we have him all to ourselves. Welcome to the show, Ken.
3: Great to be here, Diana.
0: So key to your work is the absence of the whole story. If a building were a novel, then your work is like a very well-constructed sentence somewhere in the middle of the book. What is your, in a nutshell, description of your aesthetic and work?
3: Well, I think Provocatively capturing architecture in an abstract, graphic way is what keenly interests me. My intention is to make compelling photographs that remove the context and distill architecture to nothing but relationships of shape, line, pattern, detail, tone, and our texture.
0: And when you say you want to provocatively capture architecture in an abstract way, talk to me about what provocative means to you in terms of your work.
3: Well, it means that I don't do representational photography where I take a picture of an entire building. What makes it provocative to me is that it's a portion of a building and You recognize it as architecture, but it's presented in a very abstracted way. So you may not know what building it is. But again, I I just like to explore shapes, patterns, lines, texture. Those are the things that really intrigue me.
0: You have clearly honed your ability to truly observe your surroundings. Most of us, of course, wander through our lives doing a bad job of both seeing or listening. But that also means that you must constantly be taking in a lot of visual noise. How do you keep your observing eye fresh? And are there days when you just mentally decide to be almost blind?
3: That's a great question. Um, No, I'm constantly looking around at the environment to see if there's an interesting potential composition in buildings that I'm viewing i mean i, I will be driving and be observing as much as i can to <laughs> make sure i don't get into an accident right. but um i have a log in my truck that i will take notes about a building And then return to that building to see if visual possibilities I observed initially are there for a photograph.
0: Do you ever have buildings that uh, maybe you've been commissioned to take photographs of? And and when you look at them, you just think, no, no way. There is no redeeming feature here (laughs) that I can photograph. Do you always find something?
3: It's... The commission part, if I'm asked, if I'm commissioned to take a photograph of a building, I, I would be very happy to accommodate that request. But other than that, um, a lot of people, when I tell them I'm an architectural photographer, they'll tell me about older buildings, which I, I love them, but they're not typical subject matter for what I'm trying to strive for in my photography.
0: You grew up in Detroit in the 60s and 70s, where so much fabulous architecture continues to slowly decay. How much do you think your love of buildings was inspired by the environment you grew up in versus an innate desire to seek pattern and shapes?
3: I think it's the latter. I was just very much interested in finding again those buildings that, um, that I able to explore the angle, the cube, the curve, the triangle, and the rectangular nature of the building.
0: I'm guessing a lot of people look at your photography and assume that you have a background in architecture, but you started off with a degree in pre-law and political science Mm -hmm. and your interest in building was something you did in your free time. How did it become art for you? Where did your art journey start and evolve?
3: Well, I used to like to go to art fairs and I would go into photographers' booths and look at their work. Well, let me go back a little bit further than that. Back in the early 90s, I was taking pictures of architecture and quite a few of my friends really liked my work and wanted to buy the photographs I was taking. So I would do that and concurrently, I would go to art fairs and see other photographers' work and think, well, my work certainly isn't better than theirs But I think I have a a distinct voice and a distinct Mm. talent. And so I started by competing in art fairs, or I should say participating in art fairs.
0: You are certainly not one of the camera phone digerati. Talk to me about the format you shoot in and what advantages that brings you, specifically with the work that you do.
3: Yes, I use what's called a large format camera it's a camera similar to what Ansel Adams used where there's a front and a bellows and a back and you have to put a hood over your body when you are taking the picture so it's very much analog i uh, you know i produce silver gelatin prints so it's it's something that's becoming quite rare and it's something that i think makes my photography even more unique.
0: It's also surely very time consuming. You can't just spot something, walk up to a building, take a shot and then move on. I mean, you have to plan for it. There's there's a lot of setup that goes into it. I mean, how much time does it take for you to take one of your shots?
3: That's another great question. You know, there's a great bit of intentionality to what I do. Um, the first part of it is that I observe the building, I observe how the light hits the building because that's critical. and once once I have an idea in my mind of the potential composition, I will go back when the lighting conditions are at their best. I will set up my camera. And ultimately, I will take a picture that usually takes about an hour. And unlike digital, where you can take, you know, literally hundreds of pictures Mm. of one building, I typically will take one picture of a building. The film that I use, or, or the reason why I use what's called a large format camera is the film that is used in the camera. It's four inches by five inches, the film is, which is 13 times larger than what a 35 millimeter camera would use. So with that larger negative, you get superior contrast, you get superior depth of field, you get superior focus. So it's a Better way of taking a picture, if you will.
0: And so then, once you have taken the picture and developed it, I presume, or maybe looking at the negative, ultimately, the most exciting and revealing moment is when you decide on the cropping. So, the way that you take the picture may not be what the ultimate image is. You then crop that image, right? Talk to me about that process.
3: That's one of the most exciting parts. For me, of being an architectural photographer is cropping the, the final composition. Most of the time, I have an idea of what the ultimate composition is going to be, but that's where experimentation in the darkroom occurs. And it's, it's just really fulfilling to ultimately crop, an image that I had, an idea would be provocative and actually printing that version.
0: Your work focuses on the architecture of St. Louis, where you've lived, I think, since the 80s. But I'm curious if there are any cities, other cities or particular buildings that are on your photography bucket list.
3: I've actually photographed 18 cities, um, St. Louis included, I originally shot most exclusively in St. Louis, but to be honest with you, after a certain amount of time, <laughs> I ran out of subject matter. So um I've traveled to Chicago, Kansas City, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Indiana, Cincinnati. So I've traveled quite a few cities to add to my portfolio.
0: Have you ever been tempted by any other subject matter over the years?
3: <laughs> no, it's always been our <laughs> and always black and white. I don't shoot any color.
0: Before we close, Ken, do you have any solo or joint exhibitions of your work coming up in the Midwest area?
3: I just finished having an exhibition at uh, Charlie Hausta's gallery. I have some work at a gallery in St. Louis called Graphica Fine Arts. It's uh, actually in Webster Groves. So I'm in the process of waiting for some responses on some shows at this time.
0: Well, you can see the abstracted lines, curves and perspectives of photographer Ken Conchal on his website at kenconchalphoto.com. Ken, thanks for sharing a little about your work and processes and for making time to chat today.
3: It was my pleasure, Diana. Thank you.
0: Karen E. Griffin is a multi-faceted artist. She's a textile artist with a string of solo and group shows to her name. She's a performing artist and last year she became a certified national storyteller. She's also co-authored a book, is a radio co-host, an educator and she is funny. In December 2021, she was one of the featured artists in an exhibit presented by Black Art House called Essence of a Black Woman in Baltimore, Maryland and she has performed one-woman reenactments with communities ranging from the Australian Jazz Museum, the Black Archives of Mid-America and the Mid-Continent Public Library. But for much of her life, her dream of becoming an artist was locked away as a dream. But then the right person came into her life and told her, you can do this. And she did it. Karen Griffin, we have so much to cover in our short few minutes together today. It is
4: so lovely to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Diana. It's an opportunity to be here to share my artistic journey with your audience. Reading about your
0: story and watching you tell your story online, I felt like you were a fine bottle of champagne that had been fizzed and fizzed and shaken up for years until finally the cork flew off and
4: your artistic self was suddenly flying high all over the place. How did it feel to you? It felt good. You know, now that we are in this epidemic and we wear a mask, I have a... Uh, verbally wore a mask for 30 years only because I was worked in uh, corporate America and non-corporate. And I've always been so honored to work where I have the opportunity to work at, but I did not have an opportunity to really unleash and be who I am. So as you talk about that ball of champagne and that popcorn, and you, you, you make me want to cry. And I'm thinking, wow, that is exactly what happened. Um, So it feels really good. And to honor my ancestors dream, especially my mother, and my grandmothers. So, um, you know, they laid down the foundation, but I now have the opportunity to build a legacy on for my granddaughter.
0: So back in 2017, you had a conversation with an artist called Selena O'Neill, who works Mm -hmm. with the Charlotte Street Foundation. And she said to you, you can do this. What happened between that moment and September 2020, when the cork burst off and you had your first
4: solo show? When she told me that, I did not understand what she was saying. I didn't have a clue what she was talking about. But as another female artist, she saw something in me. And what she saw is now what I see, if that makes sense. Because, you know, sometimes people will tell you no so long, you think that you are no. People will tell you no so long that you do not think you have the opportunity to grow and develop at all. And then once I realized that you get... A thousand no's, but it takes one yes to assist you with going to the next step on the ladder. But it takes another artist reaching their hand down to pull another artist up. And Selena O'Neill did that. She has been my rock, my support. Um, Even when it was time for me to launch and do my exhibition, she says, okay, now I want you to go in your studio and just shut the door and create. Um, And that started in September 2020 when I lost my very important mentor, passed away. Mr. Ron Chaney was the owner of the Ethnic Art Gallery located in the 18th and Vine District. And he was my support group, too. But um, after him passing away and then I just went full throttle and did not stop. So I shut off from society for 21 days and 21 days led from September to October, to November, to December. And I just created, I sewed as many seams as I could. And out of that, I sewed seams to create stories. So when
0: you say you cut yourself off, I mean, you just didn't speak to anybody. You came out to eat only. You kind of lived a monastic life for 90 days. (laughs) So when
4: I shut off, I did not come out to eat. I did not have a source of income. So there was not a lot of money coming in. I would go to my church and stand in the pantry line and waited to after I assisted with feeding almost 300 people and whatever was left. That's what I took. I pretty much my favorite cup of tea and, and I still have them in my studio right now was prunes and almonds. That's what I ate because I had to cleanse myself. And cleansing myself mean I had to cleanse my inner soul and my outer soul. So my ancestors come in and use me to speak what they did not get a chance to speak up on. And it was a journey. I will not lie to you. There was times I would sit down in the middle of my floor in my studio. And I remember one time exactly, and I was going to give up. Um, Because I didn't feel like I had the potential. I didn't feel like I was good enough. Then I had got two phone calls and someone said, so what are you doing? And I said, I'm sitting in the dark and I'm about to give up. And the person was like, you can't give up. You've come too far to give up. And then after that phone call, I called my aunt and I said, hey, I can't do this anymore. I don't have my mom here to support me. I don't have my grandmother here to support me. And she says, OK, if you give up and you quit, what you're going to do next? And that sparked me to get my butt up out that floor, get back on that sewing machine and use the gift that I was given. And that was at the age of seven years old when my mother placed my little brown hands on top of hers. And that's when she engaged, inspired me and educated me that I can be creative one seam at a time.
0: Tell me about that first solo show, which was entitled Our Ancestors' Mm. Unfinished Stories in
4: America on the Line. Yeah. So I went to Dr. Carmelita at the Black Archives and I have my portfolio open, ready to go and says, I would love to do an exhibit in October. And she says, well, I don't have a space available until November. And I was like, "Okay, cool. Second meeting come about and she says, "Okay, well, here's the layout. and You tell me what you want to do. She said, but you can't put holes in a wall. I said, what? <laughs> and then to, in the back of my mind, I'm like, and then I don't want to do that. I'm not if I can't put holes in a wall, I don't want to do it. Well, needless to say, a tap comes on my shoulder and be like, what? What you mean you're not going to do it? Ain't no way we brought you this far. And you gonna say what you ain't going to do. You have been chosen to be the vessel, to be the messenger, to deliver this. And this is what you're going to do. So I went back to the drawing board, and this is when it all came into full fruition to design an exhibition title, Our Ancestors, Unfinished Stories in America on the Line. And please take note, un, I did the lowercase u capital finished. And then when I did America, I did it with a little A because as a woman of color, I'm still not accepted in America like any other woman is. Mm. And that part is the most devastating part. I can do anything. I have degree and potential. But yes, still, someone looks at me and because of color of my skin, that changes the whole narrative. That changes the whole conversation. So when I created this exhibition, my mind is just going now and. It really is a depiction of my ancestors and a woman of color now still being mentally lynched in America. Physically, I'm not being lynched, but mentally I am because there's certain things that I'm told that I cannot do because I am a woman of color. Because I'm labeled black, because I'm labeled African-American, there's still things that is limited. What I can do, can't say where go. And I said, well, you know something, let me turn my megaphone around. Because sometimes people don't want to hear what you're saying, but they'll relate and understand what you created and you express through art. So I created 21 textiles. Um, The whole exhibition, the opening part was in honor of my grandfather and my grandmother and their parents and their parents. So I had a dress to represent grandmother, a pair of pants, socks, and a shirt. And of course I had to color it. You can't have an exhibit <laughs> if it's not color coordinated. And so it was rope. So I had rope, I had posts, I had buckets, I had burlap. So it was on clothespins. So you remember the old clothespins mm. that you would use? Grandma, okay, I'm taking you way back now, right? <laughs> and so I had those old clothespins, not the clamp ones, but the ones you had to slide on. So I had that was the opening exhibition because what people failed to realize is my ancestors, great-great ancestors were running, they had to get clean clothes. Clean clothes wasn't on the line to just get clean clothes. The clean clothes would get fresh clothes so the dogs wouldn't pick you up as you're running. So I had every single piece on a clothesline, but the underlying story was, again, it talked about lynching, but it wasn't the graphic part. The one piece that I did finish And I kid you not, I dropped to my knees on the day before the exhibition. And that's when I finished it. And I did a piece called 1619 No Passport to America because my great, great ancestors did not have a passport. And to think now I have the opportunity to get a passport to go overseas is a blessing, again, because they laid down that foundation for me to build a legacy on. It's 140 inches long and 43 inches wide. And so the depiction of it was all these different shades of brown. And then it had um, black, which represent death, the gray, which represents the chains. And then it had this wood piece to represent the ship. And blue, three-inch blue all the way around to represent their journey to America across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I did a piece called Grandma's Dress Pattern because my grandmother did not have a simplicity, a vogue, or a pattern to fit her upright base body, if you understand what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that was an honor to do that piece. I did a piece called Slaves Unmarked Graves because some of my great ancestors does not have tombstones or gravesite that they can go and lay in. Um, and I did a piece called uh, "The Motherland." Um, so having that exhibition there and seeing people come out to see it, and we're talking about dead in a, at COVID in November 2020. I mean, COVID was high and heavy, right? So to see people come out and see that exhibition was the highlight of my life because I never thought, never ever thought that I would have the opportunity to host my very first solo exhibition in honor of my ancestors' journey. And I still go back and I look at the pieces and I can't believe that I did 21 pieces in that amount of time. And, you know, my daughter would have to call me and say, Mom, I need you to come home. And I'm like, babe, there's a hold on me right now. Uh, My ancestors would not let me go for almost three days when I got done with that exhibition. And when I say they held on to me, I can feel their presence around me. Um, because I have two that are very heavy. One is the artist. She's strong will. <laughs> I don't argue with her. Let's just say I, whatever she wants me to create, I create. If I saw it seem wrong, that's when I feel my mom come in and be like, you know, you are supposed to take that loose. That doesn't look right. It ain't right. And I'm like, ugh. <laughs> and then there's the storyteller one. And then she comes along and then she helps me create a story and dialogue. And it's so funny because I'd be like, that's what you want me to do. Oh, <laughs> but the beauty of it is I had these coffee bags, right? And they were part of the exhibition. And I remember laying them on the floor in my studio. And this was right after the exhibit. i want to say probably like in January, maybe, give or take. And I walked in my studio. And for some reason, there was this beautiful anointing and this presence in my studio. And I didn't know what it was. But it felt like something had just... Hit me in my stomach, right? And it wasn't a hard feeling, but it was like, I want to show you something. I kid you not. I had dropped to my knees in tears in my studio. But when I opened my eyes, there was a message on my floor. And take note, these were coffee bags that I paid no attention to. I opened my eyes and I'm reading this message and it says, for future preparation only. Mm. And now I understand what they went through i
0: love it you use an artist name as well as your real name tell me about e lewis as being a separate person from karen e griffin
4: yes well let me explain to you E is. so e is my middle initial i do not go at my middle initial my mother was like use your middle initial and i was like okay (laughs) Uh, so e stands for excited encouraged empowered every day that's what e is So Art by E. Lewis, please take note. And I wanted to come out with a different name because everybody knew me as Karen. And you know, that crazy chick, her name's Karen. So I didn't want to be her right now. And I was like, ah. So I came out with uh, E. Lewis, Art by E. Lewis, because that is me honoring my mother and my father. So when you look at my pieces, if you look really close, my signature piece, there's a pearl in the left-hand corner of every single one of my pieces. So when I write my name, I'll do a dot, I'll do E, and I'll do Lewis. So, the pearl is my mother. The E is me. That's the artwork. The Lewis is in honor of my father kissing my mother because my mother, my father did not ask my mother's hand in marriage. So, I decided I wanted to honor my father's side of the family because if it wasn't for my father kissing my mother, me and you wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you can see the artwork of Karen E. Griffin on her website at artbyelewis.studio. And if you're in the Kansas City area, you can see her work in two exhibitions that are on right now, one at the Johnson County Library through April the 30th, and the other entitled Her Art, Their Art at the Interurban Art House in Overland Park through April the 29th. Karen Griffin, we could talk for hours. You have such a great story (laughs) and so much to share. It has been a delight liked chatting with you and thank you for sharing something about your art journey with us
4: thank you and thank you for the opportunity to share my artistic journey
0: and that is it for another week All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And, of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, painter Ken Nichols. Ozark's story-sharer, Caitlin McConnell, architectural abstract photographer, Ken Conchal, and fibres and performance artist, Karen E. Griffin, a.k.a. E. Lewis. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally... Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri!